And when all seems lost, as we kind of see in these videos, and we'll talk through some other, or, or these examples in this video, and we'll talk through some other examples from the Old Testament and the, two, the New, you know, when our situation seems bleak, it's not over, is the message. When the cards seem, as they say, stacked against us, it's not over. And the word, really, that I want you to leave here with today, whether you're watching online or you're sitting in the audience, is a four-letter word, hope. That no matter what you're going through right now, there's hope. How many here today can remember a time thinking back in your own life or in situations that you've been uh, a part of that you felt maybe there was no hope? I think probably all of us at some point have experienced that. Maybe your situation and your specific example was just too complicated or severe, you thought. Or maybe you thought, maybe like I have, I've made one too many mistakes. I've done this thing too many times. Or you just can't take it anymore. Or maybe you were hurt so deeply by someone you trusted, someone you loved, that your heart feels literally shattered. Or maybe it's that child that you would consider to be a prodigal. And it seems like they'll never come back. There's no hope. The point is we've all experienced this pain, right? In one way or another. We live in a sinful fallen world and there's no escaping that, right? This is where we are. This is where we live. And there's pain in the life. There's pain in, in life, pain that will inevitably happen. But just look at our current example right now because we can all kind of relate to this as an example uh, COVID. One example, the CDC, uh, or COVID, one report, as an example, the CDC did here recently, surveyed adults across the United States only, and it showed about 31% of the respondents of that survey reported symptoms of anxiety and depression related to kind of the situation that we're in now, not unexpected. 13% of those reported, though, having started or increased substance use, which is interesting because if you think about it, it's kind of a cycle, right? You have the anxiety, you have the depression, right? You feel hopeless. And so you turn to other things, you turn to alcohol, you turn to drugs, and that makes us feel more hopeless, more separated. And it's a vicious cycle right, that competes. The study goes on to say um, that 26% also reported stress-related symptoms and 11% increase in thoughts of suicide during a uh, the time of the period that the survey was conducted. The world needs hope, and this is the whole issue, right? People are feeling hopeless. We, we don't know what tomorrow brings. We hear new variants of COVID come, whether it's the alpha, the delta, the beta, the gamma, the whatever it is coming up next, right? We hear this new strain that's even worse than the other, that's even more contagious than the other. And if you don't have hope, it makes it all the worse. But what does hope mean? I can tell you at least there, there is at least two different definitions for hope. There's one that we'll find reading God's word, and there's one that the world will tell us what hope is. If you look at Webster's Dictionary as an example, uh, they would define hope as a feeling and desire, I'm sorry, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Straightforward, right? Fair enough. It's a pretty simple definition of hope, but True hope, and we'll see today as we dive into God's word, biblical hope is so much more than that. And thank God that it is. It's so much deeper than that. See, true hope is a confidence that by integrating God's redemptive acts, works that he's already done in the past, we can experience the fullness of God's goodness in both the present and in the future. Think about what I'm saying. Biblical faith, hope, rests on the trustworthiness of God 
to keep his promises. One, based on who he is and what he's done. So the question can be posed quite simply, can God be trusted to keep his promise? I think he can. I know I certainly have experienced that in my life. I think we see many, many examples biblically that is without a doubt God keeps his promises 100% of the time. The biblical view of hope is significantly different than, I think, than what's defined by the world's view. As an example, you can look at what the world would call some of the most prominent, some of the most intelligent or wise philosophers of our time, Greek philosophers. The word their philosophy literally meaning the love of wisdom. See, the Greeks, they recognized that human beings expressed hope by nature. Okay, it was about them. However, this kind of hope reflects a couple of things. It reflects both good and bad experiences. See, the future was a projection, then what they're saying is the future was a projection of one's own subjective possibilities. What could I do? What am I capable of? My hope is based on my surroundings, on my circumstances. Biblical hope, though, avoids this subjectivity by being founded on something greater, who God is, what he's done. It's a confidence for us in the fulfillment of who God is. God and his redemptive acts, as they accumulate in the birth, it says here, and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, our hope is because God paid our penalty. That's where true hope begins. It begins in a person. It begins in Christ. If you're a note taker, the main verse today is going to be in Colossians 127. And there's going to be a lot of scriptures. I have a lot of verses that we'll go through today, so I apologize. You can always come back on the back end and uh, either rewatch this, or if you're really quick at writing, we should have them all up on the screen too. But we'll start in Colossians 127. And again, I'm reading out the New Living Translation version. You, you can use whatever version you use. That's just the one I've chosen to go with uh, for my study. It says here in verse 27, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. You know, Paul's writing this here. Uh, it's, it's so funny. I don't know if any of you guys do this. When you read God's word, do you, can you ever picture what's being said in your head? Does anybody do that? I love doing that because especially when I get to Job and some of these some of these stories where if you ever remember at the end of Job where God has this response to the complaining, right, that Job does. And I can just picture the, that power in my head. And, and I don't do God's word justice in my imagery. I know that. But I can see here in this, the kind of the picture that I got on my head is uh, I was reading through this as Paul. It was almost like Paul was, was uh, you know, saying, shh, let me, let me tell you a secret, right? He says there, and this is the secret. He's like, hey, Christ is in you. There's your hope. Right? I can get this picture in my head that he's being a little sarcastic here and, and uh, you know, talking to his audience. But really, it is no secret. Right? God has revealed himself through time and space in his son. So as we continue on here, again, Colossians 1.27 is the verse we'll start with. But let's go ahead and pray, and then, uh, and then we'll move on. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I just thank you so much for the opportunity, Lord, to be here, to be in your word, to be with our brothers and sisters, Lord, today. I pray that you would bless them, bless me, Lord, um, be with this day, Lord, and convict our hearts when we read your word, Lord. May we see others the way you see them, Lord. May we take refuge 
take assurance in the hope that you've given us in your sacrifice and who you are in the future that you've prepared for us. Even though, Lord, it can seem difficult in the situations that we're going through, we know that you're faithful and that you're true and that you keep your promises. We can trust in that. We can rest in that. And we thank you for that. Lord, we love you. Bless this time. In your holy name we pray. Amen. See, hope and love, I think, would you all agree, is something that everybody needs. I know we can all think through times when we felt hopeless. We were in a situation where we felt like there was no hope, but we've also been in situations where maybe we didn't feel loved, or maybe we weren't loving. And there's an impact to that. We all need hope and love. And hope gives us, more specifically, direction, something right to look forward to. Some people hope for things other than what God offers. What are some examples of things people may put hope in or hope for? Money. That's a big one, right? Money. What else? Happiness, right? Maybe my 401k. Maybe my health. Or my significant other. My relationships. Are any of those consistent? Can all of those fail at any given moment? See, as Christians, we're supposed to see beyond this life, right? But it can be difficult. It's not easy, especially when we're in the midst of those trials, when we're in the midst of those pains. It can be really difficult for us, even though we know, we know that we know, it can still be difficult. You know, hope is mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament alone, and certainly something the early church spoke, a lot, you know, spoke about a lot. It's not something that's just for us now. Humans have needed hope for all of eternity. Today, we're going to look at three main points if you're a note taker. These points, I pray, will encourage you no matter where you're at. If you have a relationship with God today, I hope that the message today God uses to encourage you, you that you would be refreshed and as Hebrews 12.1 says, encouraged to run this race with endurance because you know the prize that awaits you. But if you do not have a relationship with God today, know that there's hope. If you're listening online, if you're sitting in this audience, and if you don't have that relationship with God, I pray that you're encouraged to know that you can. That you can have that hope. A hope that only God can provide, the world can't provide. An assurance that your eternity is secured by God's free gift of salvation. The ultimate hope. So we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at who is our hope, who's our hope in, where does it come from, and three, how do I get some? Okay. Do you, would you agree here by a show of hands that God can take a tragedy and turn it into something beautiful? Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. But again, like I said earlier, during the midst of that tragedy, when we're going through it, do we always see the end from where we're at? It's so hard to see. Let me tell you a story. It was 1818 in France. This story starts. And Lewis, he's a young boy, was sitting by his father in his workshop. The father was a harness maker. And the boy loved to watch his father work with leather. Someday, father, said Lewis, I want to be a harness maker just like you. Well, why not start now, dad said. So he took a piece of leather and he drew a design on it. He said, now my son, take the hole punch and the hammer. And he want you to follow this design, right? He's giving a very clear direction. But be careful, you don't want to hit your hand. Excited, the boy began to work. When he hit the hole punch, it flew out of his hand. It didn't hit his hand, it flew out of his hand and hit his eye. 
and he lost sight immediately in that eye. And then later, sight in the other eye had failed, became completely blind. A few years later, Lewis was sitting in the family garden when a friend handed him a pine cone. As he ran his fingers over the pine cone, an idea came to him. An idea he became so enthusiastic about, he began to create an alphabet of raised dots on paper so that the blind could feel and interpret what was written. Thus, Lewis Braille opened a whole new world for the blind, all because of an accident. You think Lewis, at that time that he was going through what he went through, thought, God's going to use me to change the world? No. He just thought, I can't see. I can't look at my mom's smile again. I can't see my favorite pet again. And it was gone. The point of the story is to illustrate how God can make something unsuspecting out of tragedy. The reason that I think that's important is because if we see these, we'll see these in several events in the Old Testament again, is that will help give us hope. It'll encourage us because many have been there before us, right? The Bible says nothing's new under the sun. What we struggle with in the past, what people will struggle with in the future, right? There's no new sin. It's all the same things tied back to lust, to pride, to the things we see in the Old Testament. So when those things inevitably happen, we can have hope. Nothing is impossible for God. And hope, again, like I was saying, is not just for us today. It was an important part of the world before Jesus' sacrifice 2,000 years ago. So let's set the stage a little by looking at some of those examples from the Old Testament. Uh, we'll read a couple of stories. They're a little bit long. We'll have them up on the screen. But again, I hope that you're encouraged by these events that have unfolded because we can see God's hand in them. Overwhelming odds is an example in these stories that we would have led to death of faithful men. It might have been situations that would have been very easy for us to look, uh, look at and say as a witness that there's no hope, right? It's over. It's hopeless. And you find two of the examples just in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 3, we see a story of a man and a king named Nebuchadnezzar, or three men rather. Anybody know what those men's names were? Yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I love this story so much. Again, I talk about when you read through the scriptures and you try and visualize in your head uh, what could have been taking place at the time. It just it gives me goosebumps every time when I get to the end of this. But both of these stories, actually. So we'll start there in verse 13 in Daniel chapter 3. And it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage in order to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Think about what he's saying. These three men are brought before this very powerful king, and he's mad. This guy is angry. And he said, listen, you got one chance. I'm going to give you one more chance. You will bow down. And I love their response because I can just, I picture it in my head. It gives me goosebumps. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, oh, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. 
If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it very clear to you. Think of the defiance they're showing to the king. We want to make it very clear to you, your majesty. I love how they say that again. That we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you set up. Do you think that made him happier or angrier? Yeah, it goes on to say Nebuchadnezzar was so furious that his face became distorted with rage. He was so mad. He looked different. So he commanded the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw him into the blazing furnace. So they tied him up and they threw him into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, their turbans, their robes, and other garments. And because of the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, listen to this, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw him in. That's how hot this was. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, I love this. Hear this, church. Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement. This guy that was so angry, his face so changed by rage. And can you picture this moment when he jumps up, excited? These men are in, the guards had died. And he says, oh, hold on. Did, didn't we throw three people in there? Yeah? Well, why do I see four? Who's that other guy that's in there walking around with them with no binds? And he looks like, ooh, what does the scripture say? And the fourth looks like a god. Isn't it amazing that even though that situation might have seemed hopeless, you're getting thrown into a furnace where the guards are already killed when trying to throw you in. And against all odds, there's a fourth standing there in that fire. Can you see the hope? Just a couple chapters later, we see another story in Daniel chapter 6 about Daniel and King Darius. Starting in verse 21, Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. The king also chose Daniel and two others, uh, or I'm sorry, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. And king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. And Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers because of Daniel's great ability the king made plan uh, the king's made the king made plans to place him over the entire empire then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way daniel was handling government affairs but because they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn for he was faithful always responsible and completely trustworthy so they concluded our only chance of finding grounds for accusing daniel will be a connection with the rules of his religion. Isn't it amazing before we go on how we see that today? You could be a Christian. You can love the Lord with all your heart. You can do your job as unto the Lord. You can be a light to this world through what Christ has done in you. And where do they attack? Where does the world attack? If you believe the Bible, you're hateful. If you speak the truth, you're a bigot, you're hateful. And that's what they're doing here is they, we can't find any fault with the way this guy's acting. So let's attack what he believes. 
And that's what they did. So the administrators, it says, and high officers went to the king and said, long live King Darius. We are all in agreement. We administrators, officials, high officers, advisors, governors, that the king should make a law and that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, anyone who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty, issue a sign, issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed. An official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned of the law, learned that the law had been signed, he went home and what did he do? Did he cower? Nope. Went right back to it and prayed. He went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with the windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about this law. Did you not sign a law for the next 30 days? Any person that prays to anyone divine or human except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions? Yes, the king replied, that decision stands. It's an official law, and it can't be revoked. Then they told the king, well, okay, the man Daniel, he's not listening, right? He still prays to God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled. And he wasn't troubled necessarily because of what Daniel has done. It says he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. It was like that, uh-oh, what do I do now? Because he spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men together uh, went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, that no law the king signs can be changed. So at last, the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. The story ends up saying that a stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. If you can picture that, the king sealed the stone. He put his seal on it. Uh, the nobles put their seals on it so that no one could rescue him. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. We see a difference between the first story and the second story, though, right? Where the in the figure of the king here. So very next morning, the very next morning, it says the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. So imagine this, right? He goes out to the lion's den. He's been fasting. He's been upset. He's been worried, and he goes out there and he takes that thing off the the den, and he says, "Hey, well, you can read it here in scripture. Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you?" from the lion's den and picture that in your head that he's standing there he's hoping he's hoping that it worked right that his god saved him and what's the first thing he hears long live the king coming from that den does that make sense in a worldly sense that you could be thrown into a furnace so hot that it can kill anybody that gets close to it or you can be thrown into a hungry den of lions sealed up and walk out proclaiming long live the king doesn't make sense to the world but it's the god that loves us it's the god we serve it's the god our hope is in again there's that word hope moving forward to a new testament example in acts 9 we see a story of a man named saul you'd be familiar with this saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the lord's followers so he went to the high priest. 
He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers on the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Who is this Saul? Who is Saul? So did he have, would it be fair to say that he didn't like Christians very much? Would it be very very uh, accurate in saying that this Saul hated Christians? I love this story and we'll get through, uh, we'll get through it here in a minute. Um, but let's continue on. As he was approaching Damascus on the mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Could you imagine what he must have thought? As a matter of fact, uh, the voice goes on to reply, I am, or he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. You can see the people that were with Saul had a reaction to here that says the men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but Saul, no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground. When he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Think about this situation. Saul, this man who hated Christians. He was a, what you could call a devout Jew, right? Letter of the law. This is heresy. You'll die. Going from where he was at to Damascus with that purpose in his mind, this is what's going to happen. And then that light showed up and Jesus said, what are you doing? Have you ever been in that situation where you felt that in your heart, you're in the middle of something, you had certain plans and God said, what are you doing? That instant conviction. It goes on to say, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street in the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now, and I am showing him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about, this terrible, about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And not, not only that, Lord, as if he didn't know, he's authorized by the leading priest who has everyone who calls on your name. And listen to what the Lord says. He says, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It goes on to say, so Ananias went and found Saul, laid his hands on him. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. He regained his sight. And then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food, regained his strength. And Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. What do you think then 
the name Saul inspired in Christians at the time? Could it inspire fear? Sure. I mean, we're human, right? If we know that there's someone that hates us, that wants us dead. Yeah. I mean, we trust in Jesus. We trust in who he is and what he can do. We have a hope, but it's human to have that response, right? We might have that little trepidation. They did uh, there, obviously. They, he has it. And I say that because we know that he had a name, right? We see this in the story. They know who Saul was. Do you think that the Christians then at that time before Saul's conversion needed hope? Sure. And they had hope because they've already seen the result of the cross. They know that Jesus rose again. But what's really sweet about this story to me and what's really powerful about this story, and, and that is too, the hope that, that the Christians would have had at that time. But think about the hope that Saul had after the fact. He had a second chance. This guy who was killing Christians, that was persecuting Christians, that hated Christians. And God said, I'm using that person. How many times can I ask in our lives, have we had someone that we could con consider a Saul? And how are we to know that God doesn't say, that's who I'm going to use. I'm going to redeem that person. I'm forgiving that person. So many times we make judgments on who we think deserves forgiveness, who we think deserves redemption. But the reality is who deserves anything from the Lord? None of us. But his salvation is free. Amen. His redemption is for us by the work he's done. See, Saul was a, a persecutor of Christians. Think about, uh, and we talked about thinking about what those early Christians would have thought. Also think of some other examples of Saul. Maybe a man brought dead, or a man that was dead and brought back to life with a voice saying, come forth, Lazarus. See, the point we're seeing here is that just like the story that we saw in the video and the story we see with Lazarus and even with Saul, is, there's hope no matter what. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you have made. There's hope. And we see here with Lazarus, it doesn't even matter if you're dead. God can say, I'm not done with you. Isn't that an amazing thing to think of? That there is nothing in this world that can separate us from God if we trust in him. Not even death. Fortunately for us, we have that blessed hope. We know to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says, Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in a world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. This is a reminder to us specifically being with Christ and without God means that we are without his hope. I mean, we talked about this earlier. You can hope in things of this world like money, power, right? Your 401k, your health, but none of that will last. Years ago, uh, I heard Francis, a man named Francis Chan use an example that I just think uh, is very relevant to what we're talking about. And in this example, he was up on stage 
quite a bit larger than this, uh, but he had this long white rope. Has anybody ever seen the example of the rope? You know what I'm talking about. So he had this long white rope and he had about an inch of this rope it was red. Okay, and he took that rope and an example would be if I took that rope and we stretched it all the way down the aisle here past the sound booth out to the back, right? And I had that inch that was red up here, but the rest of it was just that white rope. And he used that example to symbolize eternity. See, that red part, that red inch on that rope is an example of our lifetime. Maybe it's 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, the life we live. We spend so much time in the world, spend so much time concerned with what happens in that little inch. And they lose sight of everything that's eternity, right? They spend so much time focusing on the pleasures of that inch and the little sins that they love and they can't get let go of that, that impacts that inch, not realizing that what we do in that little inch echoes throughout all of eternity. Because we're going to spend eternity, you and I will spend eternity somewhere, eternity somewhere. That question is where? So do we sacrifice the infinite length of that rope for the pleasures in that inch? Do you understand the, the, the example that he used? What we do here in the, scream, in the scheme of eternity is insignificant other than the choices we make. And I'll go through that here in a minute. Everything in perspective, eternity in perspective. I put here the only thing that we will take with us after we die is what? What will we take with us after we die? Nothing, right? You know, pastor said this before up here is that you, have you ever seen a U-Haul being towed by, or behind a hearse? No. The only thing we will take is the, the eternal consequences of the choices we make in life, specifically whether we trust in Jesus for our salvation or we reject his free gift. That's it. Everything else is burned here. Everything else stays here. Circling back to our original three points, Christ is our hope. The question was on the first point, who is our hope? And Colossians 1.27, I'll repeat it. We said this at the beginning, was God wanted them to know the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret that Christ lives in you. And that gives you the assurance of sharing in his glory. Another translation say the hope in his glory. We have to understand that Christ is our home, our hope. Without him, we would not have hope in anything beyond this life. And I promise you that whatever we have hope in in this life, aside from Christ, we're going to be disappointed by eventually. When we look at our lives, we see imperfection, sure. But if we keep our eyes focused on Jesus, we can be brought back to home. And I, by that, I'm, I mean, it's easy for us to get distracted with things in this life. But if we can keep our eyes focused on the cross, keep our eyes focused on who God is, and that's where we get hope. If we can keep our eyes focused on Jesus, all of a sudden when there's the flames all around us, we can stay focused on that fourth person in the fire. When we're in the midst of that lion's den, we can stay focused on the one that holds the mouths of those lions shut. Isn't that comforting? In that instant, when we're focused on the Lord so intently, 
all of a sudden those really big things, they can start to seem pretty small because we start to realize that we have all of eternity. Romans 15, 13 says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. And you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can hope because God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. I'm going to move on here in my notes just as a heads up for the guys back there. So what do we do next? Where do we go with that? Hopefully, if you're a Christian and you love the Lord, it encourages us. It's been said, this quote here is, hope is called the anchor of the soul. We see that in Hebrews 6.19. Because it gives us stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it's something that we latch on to with the certainty of promises and who God is. Because we can see that he fulfills his promise. He's done it from Genesis and he'll continue to do it all the way to his coming back. Not once has God ever, ever failed on his promise. Even though too often it's what we deserve is death, but he's faithful. Praise God. Do you know Jesus today is a question that I want to ask in conclusion. Do you know him? Do you have hope for the future? Whether you're online or sitting in this audience, everyone needs salvation because we've all sinned. No one gets a free ride. I don't get a free ride. You don't get a free ride because every person is guilty before God. We all fall short. But I want to take you through some scriptures. And if you don't know the Lord, if you don't know Jesus, it's very, very simple. And I'll let God's word speak for itself because it can weigh better than I can. Romans 3, 9 through 12 says, Well then, should we conclude that Jews are better than no others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. As scripture says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away and all have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord, and he is our hope. Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace 
with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done. And when we finish this off in uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 38 through 39, it says in, chapter, in verse 1, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And I am convinced there in verse 38 that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It really is that simple. There is no secret society, secret handshake. You don't have to wear any special garments. You don't even have to say a special prayer. It just, there's nothing you can do to get to God. And he knows that. So he had to come to us. And he did that 2,000 years ago. Romans 10, 13, again, says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Listen, it's not just for the Jews in Jesus's time. It's just not for the assemblies of God or the Calvary chapels or any group that claims exclusivity to God. He rejected all of that. He says he is the way and the truth and the life. And whoever calls on his name, not my name, not any other name in all of history other than Jesus will be saved. It's that simple. I know it can be very easy to say, but that can't be it. There's got to be more, but there's not. And anybody who tells you that there is more, run from that. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, God saved you by grace when you believed. And you can't, listen here, you can't take credit for this. It is a gift of God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Salvation is because God loves you. And God loves me. And we don't deserve it. And it's overwhelming. But he does. I pray that you are encouraged today. And, that there is all, and to know that there's always another in the fire. No matter what you're going through. The flames seem too high. When you know you're headed into that lion's den, know that you are loved by the one that walks with you in those flames. It doesn't mean that this life doesn't have trials. It doesn't mean that things aren't hard, but there's hope. I'm going to leave you with Romans 5.13. It says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just thank you again so much for this time together. Lord, we just pray that you be glorified, that you be magnified, Lord. And we just thank you that no matter what we do, there's nothing we could have done to earn it. You love us so much that you sent your only son. You stepped off of your throne. You put yourself in these dirty rags, as you call it. It took on the form of one of the most helpless things in the world, a baby. Knowing what that meant, knowing that it would lead to your crucifixion, your death, and praise, praise to you inevitably three days later, your resurrection. Nobody can claim that in history.
and none of us can ever earn it with anything that we do. But we thank you for it. We thank you for that free gift. We praise you, Lord, and love you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.